Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. In this special edition of LawPod, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Fry, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University and veteran representative of the Pacific island of Tuvalu at international climate change negotiations. In the episode, we take a deep dive into the issues addressed at COP26 in Glasgow and survey the state of international climate diplomacy. The small island states are often cast as the conscience of UN climate negotiations, and for good reason. They are often represented by the most experienced and passionate of diplomats. Ian Fry, whose forebears have origins here in Northern Ireland, has championed the cause of the small island states and the least developed for 25 years. In 2009, he brought proceedings at the ill-fated Copenhagen Cup to a halt with one of the most memorable interventions ever witnessed during UN negotiations. Ian, welcome to the Law School uh, podcast. Delighted to see you. I thought it would be nice to begin with a, an introduction to your own, suppose your own biography, but it's a biography that's very closely tied up with the climate change negotiation process. It's going back uh, some years now. So maybe you could introduce yourself and give us a, a taste of your uh, interventions and uh, role in the negotiations. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. So I, I basically started in this sort of climate change process uh, back in 1997. I was working for Greenpeace Pacific at the time and gave a briefing to the then Prime Minister of Tuvalu uh, about climate change. And so, and uh, he he liked it and said, well, will you come on the delegation to, uh, to Kyoto, which was the uh, that was COP3 uh, in 1997, so I, I was part of the Tuvalu delegation. And then uh, the next year, I basically left Greenpeace and started working for the Tuvalu government and uh, have done so right up till 2019. Uh, and it, it basically, you know, I've been attending most of the COPs since then and all the, the sort of subsidiary body meetings which are held uh, each year around June in, in, uh, in Bonn. So I've been attending those sorts of meetings. Of course, it's, uh, you know, following the Kyoto Protocol, the development of what was called the Marrakesh Accords, the rules for that. In fact, when I first started with, uh, with the Tuvalu government, I thought Tuvalu was a member of the G77, a group of uh, developing countries, but we weren't. So I started attending G77 meetings, and, and at one stage I even became the coordinator for G77 on land use and forestry issues under the Kyoto Protocol. And then finally somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, actually Tuvalu's not a member of G77, so can you please leave? So that, that was a bit embarrassing for me. But uh, 
So, you know, there's been lots of ups and downs in this whole COP process. I, I think the most notable one was Copenhagen, uh, COP9, <clears throat> um, where basically, you know, we, we had very strong expectations. We were going to land a new agreement on, on, uh, on climate change, uh, additional to Kyoto Protocol, brought on board all countries. And we'd been working in the lead up to, to Copenhagen with that. And in fact, six countries presented draft texts of what, what was required for a new agreement. One of those we had done as, as Tuvalu had presented a draft text. So we, we expected that there would be a reasonable dialogue uh, to, to look at those texts, uh, to bring on board all countries to do more effort because, you know, for Tuvalu's sake, uh, Tuvalu is a small coral atoll nation of 11,000 people. Its highest uh, point above sea level is only four metres. So it's extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And it's already suffering that, those impacts now. Uh, the, the cyclones are getting more severe. Storm surges are getting more severe. And, and some of these storm surges wash right across the island. And that kills the crops, contaminates the water, etc. So there's a real urgent need to deal with climate change. So when we, we you know, arrived in Copenhagen, we really had an expectation that there was going to be a reasonable consideration of a new agreement. But, uh, you know, at the time, President Obama had convinced the Prime Minister of Denmark that this was not going to happen, unbeknownst to us. And so when we got to a sort of accepting the agenda for the meeting, uh, the, the then sort of chair of the meeting, Connie Hedegaard from Denmark, basically said, we won't have a proper discussion of these proposals for new agreements. So I, I had to intervene and, and say, well, I'm sorry, but this is on the agenda. We want a proper discussion. And, and um, basically called for a halt to the meeting until there was a proper consideration of those, those, those issues. Of course, uh, at the end of the meeting, you know, we, we were basically landed with a, this Copenhagen Accord uh, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu was there, but he was never engaged in that discussion of that Copenhagen Accord at all. And and he had to leave the day before it was presented. And so I worked with him the night before to work out our red lines about what was acceptable in this accord, noting, in fact, that it wasn't going to lead to a legally binding agreement. And one of those was the concern about you know, a reference to 1.5 degrees Celsius, because this was a, a critical temperature limit that that the IPCC had said would would be, you know, uh, sort of the the area where Tuvalu may survive or not. This came out in one of their graphs, which is classically known as the burning embers graph in one of their earlier reports. I think it was uh, their third assessment report or fourth assessment report I presented this graph and it basically showed that, you know, small island states, particularly coral atolls, could be on the brink of not surviving above 1.5 degrees Celsius. So when we saw the Copenhagen Accord in the, in the wee hours of the Saturday morning after the COP was supposed to have finished, there was a reference to two degrees. And we, we uh, you know, that, that had crossed our red line. And, and you know, for a vulnerable country, we just couldn't sign off on an agreement that basically spent the, uh, spelt the end of Tuvalu. So um, 
so that's you know we we had to object you know and i i, I knew at the time that as soon as the prime minister of uh, of denmark you know spoke to this copenhagen accord i had to press the button and intervene and, and basically stop him from just gaveling it through you know getting it accepted and said look i'm sorry prime minister but we can't accept this and and five other countries joined in and said you know we can't accept this as well and so you know that that caused a you know a lot of concern we had we then you know broke into little huddles to try and find out a wording of how we could deal with this copenhagen accord and in the end we just noted it and 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 so that was you know probably the most stressful time in my negotiating career because it, you know you had to stand up to the likes of president obama and all other heads of state who'd agreed on this text uh and say no this isn't acceptable to us so the, these are the sort of challenges you have as a negotiator of course we went into a bit of a lull after the copenhagen and we started to build up momentum again towards uh you know agreeing to a new legally binding agreement we did that in south africa at the durban cop and we started developing uh, the paris agreement as it turned out and so i i was uh involved as part of the least developed countries uh group to to work on you know key elements of the paris agreement uh and and you know it finally came through in the end that's great, Ian. Um, I remember in Copenhagen there were examples of the intense pressure uh, that bears down on members of the small island states. I think there were one or two examples, weren't there, of uh, states that were effectively bought off um, in terms of their positions? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, in the lead up to Paris, uh, the the Maldives government, the president of the Maldives had, had been you know, making a lot of statements. And in fact, he held an underwater cabinet meeting, you know, in scuba gear to sort of show this is what it's going to be like for a country like Maldives. But, but you know, in the end, he he accepted the Copenhagen Accord. And, and for the life of me, I couldn't understand why he accepted that. And, you know, there, there were reports that came out in WikiLeaks afterwards that, you know, money had changed hands uh, between the US and the Maldives government uh, uh, before Copenhagen. So whether that precipitated that change in view, I'm not sure. But certainly it, it was disturbing to me that, you know, this champion of climate change was now sort of, uh, you know, had given up. Would it also be fair to say that the, the, uh, the way in which Obama... Uh, stepped in at the end of Copenhagen and, um, for the want of a better word, cobbled together these voluntary uh, commitments. In some ways, that was quite formative in shaping uh, what eventually uh, took shape leading up to the Paris Agreement. Is that is that a fair comment? Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, it... it, it... I mean, there were people behind the scenes, sort of working on this sort of draft document, and 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 basically, he he sort of brokered a deal with India and China because they, you know, there was a small group of leaders had gone into a small room to sort of hammer out this Copenhagen Accord and whether they could agree on uh, an amount of money for it, you know, what 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 commitments, you know, all countries would take, etc. 
And the, the Chinese and Indian delegates sort of walked out of that meeting, you know, to discuss amongst themselves. And Obama crashed that meeting and got a deal with them and, and presented that as the sort of outcome. Um, uh, we were effectively given the Copenhagen Accord again at the next COP in Mexico and, and sort of made to sort of swallow it again. But, it, but I guess it, it set in train a process of, you know, greater reporting from all countries, both developed and developing countries had to, had to report on what they were doing. And this, this essentially, you know, paved the way, I guess, for the development of the Paris Agreement, where all countries had to take on what we, we called nationally determined contributions. And even that, that terminology, nationally determined contribution, was a highly contested word, word you know, that they're originally going to be uh, national commitments. And then, you know, uh, India, I think, basically said, no, we want something that's nationally determined. And, and it, it can't be commitments. So I think the US objected to the word commitment because it sounded too much like the Kyoto Protocol. And at that stage, the US had pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol and they didn't want a new agreement that looked too much like the Kyoto Protocol. So it became nationally determined contributions. And of course, the, the, I suppose the legal significance is that the, uh, the contributions themselves are not legally binding. Well, this, this is the issue, whether or not, you know, and this is the, the game that, uh, that Obama had to play because he, he knew that, you know, he had limited powers through his presidential powers to sign on to a legally binding agreement through his executive powers uh, without it having to go to Congress, you know, and, and this was the, the path he had to tread. And so, you know, throughout the negotiations, of, of the Paris Agreement, we were reminded of this fact that, you know, there were limitations to how legally binding it would be. And in fact, in the first contact group in Paris, um, uh, the, the, we were, I was in one on the mitigation talking about these nationally determined contributions, and we had language that was this, prepare uh, and, and Implement was one of the key words, you know, to implement nationally determined contribution, which was a, a key issue. And, and the, the, the U.S. says we can't live with the word implement because that, that, that was basically, you know, them committing to doing something in a legally binding form that Obama felt he could not commit to without it having to go to Congress. So we lost the word implement. So we now prepare and update, but we don't formally commit to it. And there's other language, you know, in the last few minutes of Paris, there was a so-called editorial change to change the word shall to should as far as financial commitments by developed countries. And again, that was at the behest of the United States because it, it, it implied a legal obligation to provide finance. But there are other aspects of it that, are, that are, do have legal consequence and and so, and so we had to sort of play this charade that we were not actually developing a treaty and under, you know, Vienna Convention on the Law of the Treaties, but a, a sort of informal agreement to satisfy the audience back home in the United States. But in reality, we, we were. We were negotiating a legally binding treaty, but we, we couldn't call it that. And so it became the, the Paris Agreement, you know, as a sort of, 
uh, a disguised form of a legally binding treaty. But there's a isn't there a distinction to be drawn uh, between the uh, you know the, the reporting commitments, for example, and the actual contributions, the numerical contributions? Isn't there a, a distinction to be drawn in terms of legal uh, undertakings or enforceability? Well, I mean, you can pull it apart. You can pull apart the Paris Agreement and, and decide through looking at the language of the mays, should, and shalls. Uh, you know what what you know, forms a sort of legally binding obligation or not. And, uh, you know, to this day, we still have uh, these debates around that. You know, I, I was involved in a, the negotiation around uh, Article 8 of the Paris Agreement, which relates to loss and damage. And in fact, uh, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu uh, met with Senator Kerry, uh, who was Secretary of the State at the time, twice in bilateral meetings. And, and the French knew that you know, if if Tuvalu and and the United States could agree on on language around Article Eight, then that it'd go through. And we 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 only had one contact group, one negotiation with all parties on Article Eight in in Paris. And and you know, to their to their, you know, to their wisdom, the French knew that this had to be done, you know, by a select number of countries to get it through. And and of course we we had to fight against the U.S. They they apply applied a sort of three pronged approach to get rid of loss and damage. First, first they said there's no it doesn't belong in in uh, in a, a legally binding agreement in in the Paris Agreement. And we we had you know uh, meetings. The Prime Minister of Tuvalu and myself and you know senior officials from the White House had meetings in New York around this. And they said we've spoken to President Obama. He said. This looks like liability and compensation to me, and so we we can't live with that. So they said, no, it doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't have a place in the Paris Agreement, and and because we worked hard with a group of seventy seven countries, uh, you know we had a unified position in supporting loss and damage, and so the United States tried the second prong of their attack and basically said, oh, let's let's fold this into the 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 article relating to adaptation uh and and so this was you know to create confusion around what is loss and damage you know is it just building your resilience to the impacts of climate change uh so they hope to do that and again you know g77 said no we want a separate agreement so after these bilaterals between the prime minister of tuvalu and and sec, uh senator kerry we we were called into a small room. I think there were three representatives from LDCs. There were three representatives from small island developing states, and there were five representatives from the United States. And we just sat there, and there was a French observer there, and we just sat there and worked through the text of Article Eight, you know, and, and finally reached an agreement on what the wording would be, on the proviso that there would be uh, uh, a clause within the decision text, not within the agreement itself, that would limit liability and compensation. So that was the deal struck between Senator Kerry and the Prime Minister of Tuvalu. You can have a separate Article 8 under the Paris Agreement, but there had to be a provision within the decision text that limits liability and compensation. So, you know, I, I was quite surprised by that because 
I thought that would have to go into the Paris Agreement itself. But to the credit of the Prime Minister Tuvalu, he managed to get that into the decision text, which doesn't have the same legal standing as as a you know a formal treaty. So, and you know we worked carefully on that liability clause, and I've had lots of discussions with lawyers after that. Uh, that's I think it's uh, paragraph fifty one of the one CP twenty one text as to what it means and and what what it delivers and uh you know i have certain views on that and uh and i i think you know in reality we've got a, a whole new concept brought into this agreement on loss and damage which is quite critical and uh and of course this you know the discussions on loss and damage came out in glasgow cop as well uh and you know it was again a controversial issue and it, of course it has been uh, deferred or uh, handed over, I think, to further um, conversations uh, from Glasgow. You, there wasn't a great deal of progress. Was there any any straws in the wind in terms of progress or direct uh, well, I mean, we got an agreement to a San Diego network on on loss and damage, which is basically, you know, a facilitative network for for institutions that have some expertise in this area to get together and, and, you know, and discuss it. And we've got a sort of work program to look at this issue further. In, in the second week of the COP, uh, uh, some developing countries put forward the idea of a new financial mechanism or fi- a finance facility for loss and damage. Uh, in, in my view, it wasn't a well-presented argument. Uh, of course, we need this. So, uh, you know, the, the countries like Tuvalu are already suffering huge losses and damage as a consequence of climate change and and there's no fund or facility for us to to get any sort of uh you know ability to rebuild after those we're we're playing around with insurance arrangements but that that's only a small part of the of the picture so we definitely need some sort of fund to to you know to support uh you know countries who are, are badly hit by the impacts of climate change so uh, you know, we've got to, we've sort of opened the door to a dialogue on this process and we, we've just got to do our homework to make sure that it, it comes forward. And we've got to think about what are the innovative ways of getting that fund up? Could it be, you know, a tax on fossil fuels or could it be some other other measure, you know, like a Tobin tax on, on international transactions? The, these are the sort of things we have to think through. Yeah, no, certainly it's one of the most interesting Innovations, I think, in the agreement, very far-reaching. Um, if you can give it substance, let's let's. That, it really brings us up to Glasgow and COP26. And one of the things that strikes me whenever uh, the media are um, reporting on the the COP, and it's it has taken on, of course, a, a new um, visibility in the media because of the urgency and post-Paris. But I wonder if you could give us um, a more nuanced uh, description of what uh, COP26 was about in terms of the process um, and the, the the multiple nature of the the conferences that are taking place alongside each other, and then of course the uh, the associated activity, the side events and civil society activity. There's a there's a, there's a whole array of activity, but 
a relatively limited number of people are involved in the negotiations, of course, at the heart of these uh, processes. Yes, well, I mean, there were almost 40,000 people attended the COP. And and uh, not all of those people are sort of involved in the negotiation. So this is the whole sort of parallel meetings, as you say, going on at the same time. For for some of us, we're looking at the three treaties that we have, the Climate Convention, the Kyoto Protocol, and the Paris Agreement. And each one of those treaties has an agenda uh, to advance the work of those treaties. So we, we have to agree on that agenda and, and advance those issues. And, and critically for Glasgow, we, we had to finish the rule book, what was called the rule book for the Paris Agreement. And there were three key elements to that. And it was basically the carbon markets, which is Article 6, uh, the reporting measures, which is Article 13, and what was called common timeframes to, to bring in step uh, all countries to report on a regular basis. So that that's... That's the, the sort of negotiations of the critical sort of Paris Agreement rulebook. And I, I was actively involved in the carbon market issue. So you've got that negotiation on, going on. Then you've also got what's called the, the cover decision, the, um, the, the overarching decision that the COP president delivers as a sort of key framing of how they wish to advance the agenda. And and that's uh, you know another set of negotiations, intense negotiations around the wording of that. So there's that process where we're and you know there are other agenda items on capacity building, indigenous peoples, uh, on finance issues, technology transfer, adaptation. They're all these agenda items that fit within these three legally binding agreements uh, are carried out. So. You know, for the least developed countries, we meet a week before the start of the COP. We allocate spokespeople to cover each of the agenda items because, you know, as a party, we just can't cover everything. So we we allocate spokespeople, we discuss the issues, we go into breakout rooms and, and discuss, you know, what are the core elements, the red lines for the least developed countries. So I was involved with that, I was a spokesperson for the least developed countries on Article 6, the carbon market. So you've got that sort of rules discussion and they're in small rooms. Of course, in, in Glasgow, you also had the Leaders Summit. So they all, you know, heads of state uh, came, you know, a large number of heads of state came to the COP and made, you know, uh, speeches they met amongst themselves. They they made various pledges, and so this is this is the sort of non-formal process of the COP, where you're getting heads of state coming together, and making and pledges to do things. And so there were a number of pledges made at the COP, and I I can return to those you know as we get on with this conversation. And then we've got, as you say, these side events. So you've got a whole. It's like a, a you know a, a fair you know a, a convention where you've got stalls, you've got industry groups, international emissions trading association, aviation associations, various NGOs have all got a sort of store and are holding meetings, having guest speakers talk, uh, podcasts, uh, you know uh, online meetings and things like that. 
going on at the same time we're involved in negotiations. And and I don't get to see any of those uh, because they're they're being held in parallel with the actual negotiations that we're we're holding. And of course, outside the venue, there are NGO protests, uh, all sorts of uh, events outside the venue as well. So there's a lot going on. Plus, there's a huge media presence there as well, because there are world leaders there. There are there are not only world leaders, there are famous movie stars, there are uh, you know mogul, you know corporate moguls wandering around the room, and of course, the media are interested in those people. So there's a mad scramble to get interviews and things like that. So there's a lot, lot going on in these cops. So what I want, I wanted to begin with a, a, a kind of a, a generic question, really about you, you know you, you occupy the role of a, an insider, but you're closely associated with uh, the most ambitious parties, if you like, um, often the. The small island states, the least development countries, uh, are described as the conscience of the process. Um, so the question I want to put to you is this: with the 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 growing urgency and popular awareness driven by uh, media attention and the role of Greta Thunberg and civil society, um, there, there there seems to be a, a growing disconnect uh, between what the the negotiating system is delivering, and there's a kind of an incrementalism, a built-in momentum, um, and the, the, the there's a gap between that and the public expectation, and there's a risk sometimes in some of the NGO uh, responses to the COP, you know that they almost are suggesting that we need to walk away from the process. You know, there's a loss of confidence, a certain amount of uh, scepticism. How do you address that as somebody who's, you know, who's equally, if not more ambitious uh, than the NGOs, who's involved in the heart of the, the beast, if you like, that's really um, moving at a pace that, that may fail us in terms of the, the most ambitious elements of the Paris Agreement? This is the real challenge. You know, when you go into these negotiations, you have high expectations that, you know, the world is going to progress on these issues. And, and we, we could clearly see there were, you know, key points in time that we needed to see achievements as far as getting us on the path to a 1.5 degrees Celsius, you know, maximum temperature range. But but the challenge is, and, and of course, that's the reason I stay in this process is that you've got all the countries in the world, you know, meeting together and there's no other process in the world that you can do that. Uh, of course, we, we work on the basis of consensus and, and this often drives us down to the lowest common denominator and, and that's a challenge for us. So obviously we would like a lot more, but you've got, you know, countries who have major economic interests in exporting oil, exporting coal, you know, and the, the world's economy runs on these fossil fuels at the moment. We're, we're changing. We, we, we're definitely changing. And, I, and the progress is incremental and, and people get frustrated that it is incremental. But, it, but it's, it's the only way we can get all countries in the world to commit to a common cause. 
And, and you know, it's a challenge. We have to drag countries screaming to the negotiating table and accept that change is, is there and it has to be made. And for small island states, it's not quick enough, obviously. You know, we'd like a lot more, but we, we work in this multilateral uh, global system and we, we have to play by those rules. We, we try and endeavour to get, you know, uh, sort of side agreements and, and this is what some of these sort of pledges were. You know, there was a methane pledge to uh, reduce methane by 30% uh, by 2030, I think it is. So that was a small group of countries or a group of countries making that pledge outside the formal UN process. So you, you, you can chip away at different places, but nevertheless, you've got to try and bring on board everybody into this agreement. And, and the critical thing for, for highly vulnerable countries is we, we're, we're affected the most and therefore we need financial support. And the only way to do that is from the international community and put pressure on the major polluters to pay for that, for the costs that we're suffering. And you can only do that through, uh, you know, a multilateral process like we have. So, that, you know, there are pros and cons of this process. It is slow. But it does mean we get everybody on board. I, you know, I, I've often discussed this with uh, students about, you know, should we have voting in, in the climate convention? And, and, of course, if we did, we might get some more progressive positions coming forward uh, and the recalcitrant tr countries would be left behind. But the problem is, is those recalcitrant tr countries are the ones where we want the most action to take place. So if they, if they vote against a the position, they won't feel bound by a decision that it's not in their interests. Um, and so, you know, we've just got to bring them on board somehow and, and you know, provide opportunities for them to make a contribution. And this, this was a critical issue we had in the, in the, the carbon uh, markets agreement, trying to get on board, you know, some of these uh, oil exporting countries who had no interest in the carbon market, uh, no interest in, you know, making commitments to reduce their own emissions and trying to accommodate them while ensuring that we had something that would deliver perhaps uh, a system to drive down uh, emissions. There is a, a sense in which the, the UN, because of its near universal uh, uh, participation and that consensus-based approach which does drive you towards the lowest common denominator, there's a sense in which that the nature of that uh, universality allows uh, some of the recalcitrant countries to, to hide their positions and hide the ways in which they're manipulating uh, the lowering and uh, putting the brake on ambition. Um, are there other important multilateral fora that are emerging as critical spaces where real progress has to be driven? I'm thinking of G20, for example. Yeah, so there are the political processes where climate change is on the agenda, and, and, and certainly G20 is one of those where you've got sort of the major economies of the world getting together to, to agree on that. But they, they, you know, they produce declarations. They're not legally binding, and... and, and uh, you know, so they have a value in, in, in sort of highlighting issues and bringing countries together. And a lot of discussions take place 
outside the formal process, you know, where they have bilateral meetings with certain countries to, to work out sort of agreements. And, and, you know, there are a variety of those. The OECD has their own sort of processes. Uh, and, and so there are a variety of, you know, uh, international processes to, to, that sort of discuss the climate gender, but most of those don't have legally binding consequences. Okay, so if um, I was to ask you about the uh, um, the achievements of uh, COP twenty six, um, I know you've named uh, one or two already. Um, where where was progress made? Where did you feel that uh, there was some um, uh, attempt to really shift the pace of progress? Uh, where there were some breakthroughs. And where were the biggest disappointments for you? Well, you know, we, we did agree on the rule book uh, and and particularly, you know, the carbon market, the reporting requirements and the common timeframe, those sort of the final pieces in the jigsaw were put together. I mean, there were major compromises in that, in that, in that, uh, in those agreements. So, for instance, in the carbon market, uh, Brazil were insisting on, on including Kyoto Protocol credits, pre-2020 credits to be brought into the carbon market. And, and they won the day on that. And that, that's quite disappointing because it sort of undermines the new market mechanism we've established and, and, and uh, it, it's going to have consequences for that. And uh, so, you know, these are the compromises you make. I, I think there were other, other significant pledges that were made You'll notice that, uh, you know, in, in the last few minutes of, of the COP, you know, we were working on a final umbrella decision talking about the phase out of coal and, and China and India, you know, insisted that we or said we couldn't live with those words. And, and we ended up with the wording uh, phase down of unabated coal power. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, you know, on the sidelines, South Africa had brokered a deal for a, uh, of uh, $8.3 billion for tr just transition away from coal. So they, you know, while China and India were worrying about wording in the final decision, here we have South Africa, a major, uh, you know, developing country economy that obviously needs to produce power for its population was brokering this deal with other countries, uh, you know, to the, to the extent of about $8.3 So, you know, f that, that was a major sort of, you know, undertaking uh, uh, for South Africa to do that. And there were sort of other, other pledges that, that came out of this. Uh, uh, forests, uh, I think there was about a $15 billion uh, a, a sum of money pledged for forests part of that going specifically to indigenous peoples and local communities to to support uh uh funding for their them to have better uh tenure of their land so you know these are some of the deals there, there was also another interesting one which was called the uh i'm trying to think of what it was it, it was it was uh, a banking the global finance Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So this was over 80 major financial institutions getting together to form an alliance to, to commit to net zero. 
And these are the sort of big banks around the world uh, uh, um, committing to a net zero target. That, I think, is quite significant. And, and, it, and it shows that the UN process does push these other initiatives along. And, you know, and I, I think that's the critical aspect of it. Whether they'll meet those, that net zero target remains to be seen, but it's certainly showing that the financial institutions are responding to, to uh, shareholders and to the public to say, you can't be just, you know, going business as usual, you know, and working on a fossil fuel global economy. Things have got to change. And so I think, you know, just that uh, formation of that alliance was quite significant. There were other ones around, you know, uh, green shipping. There were things around zero emission cars uh, and uh, various other sort of uh, initiatives that sort of came through in the sidelines of the UN process. But these things don't happen unless you've got a, a major conference like we had in Glasgow and you have a, a major initiative at the UN level sort of pushing everybody to do something. So they, they, you know, they, they complement each other. So I, I think yeah, yeah. that those were the sort of sort of side uh, outcomes that were quite important. Uh, you know, there were there was within the the COP process, uh, you know, some additional fi- uh, commitments to finance. Uh, but you know, I, I suspect I think in the negotiation process, the major outcomes were really uh, the 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 Paris Agreement rule book outcomes. I think you're right about the, uh, the, the, the participation of the financial industry will be pivotal. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that really needs a lot more visibility, I think, and maybe uh, attention from civil society. The South Africa deal was interesting because it, 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 it leaned towards the, uh, the notion of climate justice the just transition because um, there was even provision in the deal for retraining workers and involving the trade unions. So that was a very interesting, you know, if you, if you were to imagine, uh, I suppose, the Paris Agreement working effectively, it would be that kind of template where you're beginning to address some of the, the uh, consequences for workers who are inevitably going to be uh, having to find uh, jobs in new industries as we begin to close down uh, the polluting industries, you know. So that's a, it was a very interesting example of that. Yes, and it was. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's a showcase for the rest of the world. Here, here in Australia, you know, the, the, uh, the current government struggles with that issue. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of coal mines here in Australia and there's very little attempt to try and find this, you know, so-called just transition to, to, you know, to to move the 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 uh, the coal workers, the coal mining workers, out of that that industry and into something else. I mean, there are small initiatives, you know, some, uh, you know, local government organisations are doing work around those areas, but there's no national initiative to do that. So we're quite behind the game here in Australia on that issue. Can I just return to those closing uh, moments when uh, I think it was China and India um, did change the uh, the wording 
which will limit action to the most polluting of the coal plants. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, the language is consistent with what was agreed at the, at the G20 as well. Is that right? Um, that, that, that intervention seemed to take the UK presidency by surprise. You know, was it a, a bit of a, a, a dirty play at the end of the process when everything else had been pocketed and they knew that there couldn't, at that stage, they knew that uh, they weren't going to, well, they could get away with rolling back on what, well, on language that I feel that the, the UK presidency had been agreed do you know the background to that story or what was happening? No, I mean, it, not not exactly. We don't know how that really played out, you know, whether it was, you know, the, they'd gone back to capital and and, uh, and capital had said, you know, we can't live with this language and, and uh, you know, they brought that on at the last minute. It's interesting to really look at the language there as well. You know, they talk about unabated, uh, a phase down of unabated coal power. The term unabated came from the United States, and I think it came through from the G20 meeting. And the term unabated basically gives the nod to carbon capture and storage technology. So if you've got coal-fired power stations where you can capture uh, capture the carbon and store it, then that's okay. Of course, there's no viable carbon capture and storage system in the world at the moment. But it does sort of say, well, you can you can still use coal-fired power if it's got carbon capture and storage. And the other one was, you know, this the language inefficient fossil fuel start disease, a phase out to to uh, uh, li- eliminate inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And again, the word inefficient, I think, came from the G seventy G twenty summit uh, at the behest of the United States. And and that's a nonsense. I mean, is enough efficient fossil fuel subsidy acceptable and you know does it if it works really well you know as a subsidy do we think that's acceptable i mean it, it's it's a nonsense term and and it's uh again these sort of uh wiggle words you know, slippery words to sort of reduce the the obligations on countries so you know there's probably a bank of uh uh you know u.s lawyers you know trying to find these sorts of wordings to you know, the squeeze out of it. And and while Biden was sort of presenting himself as the, the new saviour on climate change, there there was these, you know, escape clauses that he his delegation were bringing into the negotiations. I was going to ask you about the UK presidency. The um, There's an interesting dynamic um, around hosting these events. Um, it can often uh, help... Uh, the capital um, mobilise their own population. There's certainly there's, there's added visibility to the issue. It's certainly an opportunity for NGOs on the ground to to uh, um, gain traction for their own uh, climate change activism. And in Northern Ireland, for example, there's a couple of uh, climate change bills going through the assembly. So there was a lot of debate about which bill uh, might make it through the the process. Um, What did you make of the UK presidency? Uh, Was it in any way compromised by the equivocation uh, of Boris Johnson's uh, regime 
uh, around the prospect of a new, uh, I guess, a new gas field in the North Sea and even the uh, opening of a new mine uh, in England? Well, you know, people were certainly aware of that, and 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 you know, certainly there were, the, you know, while Boris Johnson was making these pronouncements about you know Glasgow being the, you know, the the pivotal era time uh, for us to take climate action, you know, people knew that domestically he had a different agenda completely. You know, opening up as you say these new gas fields and and mines. So I mean, that played on people's minds, of course. And I, I, I don't think Boris Johnson understood the COP process very well. I, I, you know, the fact that he called this sort of leader summit, it just seemed like, you know, a way of uh, him getting together his big mates in the world and, you know, and, and sort of big noting himself without understanding the sort of the nitty gritty of the negotiation process. And that, that probably led to these sort of grand pledges that were made uh, in the margins of it. But you know, I, I, I think they didn't play a very good hand in, in negotiating the outcome very well. A, a, as you say, you know, they didn't anticipate the, this objection by China and India very well. Of course, you know, this played right down to the wire and it's always a trap that, that you know, if you've got a negotiation that goes right down and beyond the, the time that the meeting is supposed to close, uh, you know, countries can bring forward you know, last-minute changes, and this seems to be become a norm that we have these sort of last-minute changes in the process, and it's hard to anticipate those. Uh, you know, in, in the in the the Madrid COP, the COP twenty-five. You know, at the last minute, Brazil objected to the the the, the decision on carbon markets because they didn't get the, what they wanted as far as carryover of units, so that was pushed aside. Uh, and so the, the, these are the challenges of, uh, you know, being able hosting a COP that that you you have high ambition and and uh, things fall apart at times. It's interesting yes. to note that the next two COPs will be held in uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so I, I suspect we can't be expecting a lot coming out of the next two COPs. Yeah, I think the next one's in Egypt. Egypt is that and then United yeah. Arab Emirates. So, uh... Oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Tell me, um, it, it would be remiss uh, not to talk about uh, China's role. And obviously, China played a, a role in the closing uh, minutes, uh, you might say reverting to type. But uh, Biden had a, a bilateral with China, I think, after COP26, and there, there did appear to be a revisiting of that uh, that quite decisive bilateral uh, commitment by China and the US to underpin uh, future progress um, in, the, in the the UN process. Um, did you take heart from the bilateral between uh, uh, the presidents of China and the, the US after COP26? And do you think we will benefit from the you know that uh, bilateral uh, agreement that also unleashed some of the some of the I suppose the the political momentum leading up to Paris? It's an interesting one to ponder. I, I mean, this is uh, you know uh, you know at the international level, 
they're antagonistic towards each other. Um, militarization has never been as great as it is now, and yet they're they're agreeing on this sort of uh, well, they they I, they did sign a U.S.-China joint Glasgow declaration on enhancing climate action uh, there at the meeting, and 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 uh, I mean it doesn't have a lot of substance to it. Uh, you know, they they did make some pledges around methane and and exploring actions for a sort of green design and renewable sources of uh, and utilization. There's not a lot of specifics to it, but it, but it does signal that these two major that that the world's biggest polluters, I guess, are getting together and and trying to find a way of collaboration. So it it I think it was quite significant that they did that. I, I mean. Of course, you know this the substance is the critical issue and and whether it will deliver collaboration and cooperation between those countries to to uh, move away from fossil fuels remains to be seen. I'd like to um, close and you're working with uh, students now in uh, your own uh, university and I think there's a there's a growing uh, certainly the the university here in Queens and I know you've you've been to visit us because you I know you've an interest in what we're doing here at Queens uh, and you have ties to this part of the world as well. Um, th- there's a growing interest across the university in uh, interesting and engaging students uh, on these issues. Wh- where would you say the the key skills? Uh, will be uh, or that are required to effect change and to make a meaningful contribution to these issues uh, in a law school. Where would you say we should be concentrating on, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in promoting and enabling students to to really engage effectively in these issues? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a challenge. In, in one of my courses, which is international environmental policy, I, I run a, a negotiation, uh, a simulation. And, and you know, we've, I've seen lots of other simulations that, uh, that uh, take place, you know, through the UN, and, and they're more like debating society discussions. They're not a real simulation. So I, I give students... You know, a brief. They've got to negotiate. They've got to make a statement of their country position and go into contact group. And we negotiate word for word. And 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 you know, they're pretty surprised by by the nature of that sort of negotiation. It's not a sort of friendly. You know, oh my my view is you know this, and we we welcome your view. We're we're negotiating word for word. And and and. Crucially in negotiations, that's where lawyers really come out. You know, I, I have a number of lawyers in my course, you know, and you can tell their analysis of words, the implications of words are critical in this sort of process. And, and uh, you know, they usually stand out in, in, that, in that process. So there, there's that, that part of it as well. But there are a lot of other legal processes that are going on that are driving climate agenda. So you've got a lot of litigation developing. You know, and, you know, I've, I've had students involved with the Environmental Defenders Office, uh, which is a sort of NGO that does a lot of litigation here in Australia. And, and that, that's critical to get that sort of experience of litigation. I've, I also have a student who's looking at the whole disclosure part of it. So it's getting corporations to disclose 
their investments in fossil fuels and and that that's quite critical and and you know i really want to work on that further to really you know uh, bring about legislative changes to ensure that companies you know give give full disclosure of their investments and this is really where a lot of change is going to occur i think you know um you know shareholders are demanding it and and i think this is where a lot of change will will come you know through these disclosure mechanisms and legislation to enforce it yeah and of course the uh Domestic legislation and the, the the drive to get governments to bind themselves to these commitments has become an important uh, front yes. in, in this battle as well. And then young people are often in the lead with these uh, attempts to get governments to 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 bind themselves, as we saw in the Netherlands. Yes, absolutely, a- absolutely, and and the same is happening happening here. We're getting indigenous peoples groups, uh, ru- you know, running cases with the human rights. Commission, we've got you know cases of uh, uh, people opposing coal mines here in Australia as well, and so getting that experience, uh, you know, participating in those legislative processes as well as developing legislation is 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 quite critical. Okay, that's great. Ian. Um, and ter- where where would you be for the next uh, COP? You know, there's twelve months uh, leading up to the next COP. Um, what would you be? What would you like to see happen over the next year in terms of civil society focus um, on on getting a good result? I know that there was a decision to to keep pressure on countries to uh, improve their nationally determined uh, contributions next year. Where would civil society uh, need to focus between now and the next COP? to really uh, uh, increase the momentum uh, and, and, and getting near that 1.5 uh, degree uh, temperature goal? Well, I, I think there has to be greater pressure put on the UK government. I mean, you know, they they came out not looking, you know, fantastic after the COP because, because of the processes. They, they have 12 months of their presidency to run. And so they've got to deliver some real outcomes. And so they've got to drive the agenda to more commitments and 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 we've got to see this sort of 2030 agenda you know where countries are, are clearly putting in revised targets i mean it's it's easy for countries to make you know net zero targets by 2050 because no politician will be alive today to to you know confirm those commitments but certainly nearer term commitments are critical to get us on this 1.5 path, so that there's a, you know a lot of pressure needed to be put onto the the governments, but also corporations to to do that, you know, to to deliver uh, the, the you know the necessary uh, you know commitments to to reduce their reliance on fossil fuel. And we you know we the renewable energy and energy efficiency world is well advanced in a lot of this work. You know, it's just a matter of uh, you know getting getting some of these these major corporations and governments to sort of you know get off the the, the, the track of, of of fossil fuels and and make new commitments I mean for for small island states I, I had a meeting with uh, Pacific high commissions here in Canberra uh, one of the issues for us is the ocean agenda uh, that that's that's coming up we, we've got a sort of ongoing dialogue on oceans and and this is a critical issue you know climate change is affecting the oceans particularly in the south pacific uh it's changing uh uh, tuna stocks 
uh, you know, the, the, the populations of tuna are migrating away from warmer waters. That's going to affect the economies of a lot of Pacific Island countries uh, substantially, as well as, you know, direct impacts of more severe cyclones. So, you know, we, we've got to also ramp up our efforts to bring home the attention of those critical issues as well. Yeah, I think you're, yeah, uh, just to close, um, you're alluding, I suppose, to the, the need always not to look at climate change in isolation from the other, uh, not only the impacts directly related to climate change, but the multiple ecological crises around species uh, uh, loss and uh, land use change. There's, uh, I suppose, there's a risk in focusing even too much on climate change to the exclusion of the system change that uh, needs to happen around core economic trajectories. Yeah, absolutely. And the way, and, the way and, we measure wealth and uh, the way we measure prosperity and uh, move away from GDP, these are important debates that come into the mix as well, isn't it? Aren't they? Certainly. And we, we have to rethink our you know, economic system around those and value these resources much better. I, I've got a meeting next week with an uh, online meeting with Papua New Guinea politicians, you know, to talk about, uh, you know, the Glasgow meeting, what it meant for the tropical forests of Papua New Guinea. And that's a real challenge, you know, a uh, uh, hugely biodiverse region of the world. Um, and w- what can be done to, to protect those forests? And there are, you know, major economic influences driving deforestation in Papua New Guinea that, that are beyond, you know, what a climate convention can do. But we, we have to address those issues as well. That's great. Ian. Thank you so much for taking the time. That's been a, a fascinating uh, uh, journey through your own participation and uh, an explanation, a real insight into the the, uh, the 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 negotiating process. And so, thank you so much for taking the time. And it's great to see you again. Yes. And, uh, thank thank you very much. And I'll I'll have to come we'll and visit up. and visit my my distant relatives. You know. Who... <laughs> Where are they from again? Did you say Fermanagh? Fermanagh, yes. So my great-great-grandfather, yes. I think, came from Fermanagh. Uh, he came out to Australia as a policeman. And, uh, and oh, so, right. uh, yes, so I, I trace, trace back to that, that part region of uh, Northern Ireland, which, uh, you know, I only got a glimpse of last time I was here, there. So I've got, to, I've got to come back for sure. Great. Well, we look forward to welcoming you back to uh, Queen's University as well. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.